Second Bananas is recorded on unceded Indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that Indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. I have a buddy who's a director who's doing a film. Oh, really? I've heard, I haven't heard it from him, but I've heard indirectly that Uva Boll is financing or backing some sort of project that he's working on about Whoa. the downtown east side, nice. the documentary thing. Um, and I think the connection is from him. Um, my buddy, uh, Sean Shaw, directed a documentary about Uva Boll. Oh wow! I, I <laughs> think worst, saying about the that. worst director or whatever. The <laughs> I only worst know him director. from all the like the video game movies that he tried to adapt. That's what like... he is known by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were like all just like, well, all video game movie adaptations are bad. So I mean, you should cut him some slack. But... Exactly. Excuse me, Jumanji is a <laughs> That's his niche. Don't make me bring up Wing Commander again because that <laughs> was robbed of nine Academy Awards. Hi <laughs> <laughs> right. to it. Yeah. Thanks for joining. This is Second Bananas. I'm Craig. And with me today are my co-hosts. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Wes. And today's episode is entitled Louis and Gabe, Keeping It Real. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's no way of getting into Louis Riel and Gabriel Dumont without providing a bit of background. Uh, Part of the reason why this is necessary. I don't think we've had an episode yet where we haven't had to provide like at least some background. Yeah. And, you know, really, you can always provide more background. I feel like this was the type of thing that researching it, you just kept on falling deeper and deeper and deeper into. Right, yeah. And it's just like, whoa. Mm -hmm. So I had to pull myself out, refocus. Anyways, uh, their story begins in uh, an area of what was becoming Canada at that time called Rupert's Land. Uh, that is in... Because a guy named Rupert. Stole yeah, it. exactly. Rupert, Rupert, the, Rupert the Bear. Rupert oh, the Bear. sorry. No. Named after him. I was thinking the kid that played... Uh... Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Rupert, Rupert Grint. <laughs> Grint. Yeah. Rupert's Land Ron Weasley. <laughs> was uh, given by the British government to the Hudson's Bay Company as basically That's theirs. Nice yeah. That's so good. Government oh, yeah. is so kind at this period. Absolutely, in history. the magnanimity yeah. abounds. Uh, present day Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Minnesota, Ontario, and North Dakota all comprised what was at that time Rupert's Land. Um, it's basically the watershed draining into the Hudson's Bay in the northeastern prairies, and it's it's super crazy to think that Saskatchewan. Manitoba and Ontario are all like one watershed. Yeah. I guess like when you have a body of water that big. It's well, Hudson like, Bay is vast. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Hudson Bay is huge. So, yeah, the, the Hudson Bay Company was in the earlier years of, uh, I guess, Canada's dominion spreading from east to west. 
basically left responsible for this vast tract of land. Um, they also had some access, as I understand it, to the Northwest Territories, which were shaped very differently from they are, from what they are today. So there is a company, basically, governing a massive swathe of land in North America at that stage for profit with the mandate of the British government. The uh, British like crown. They got yes. the green light. Exactly. Oh, buddy, did they ever. <laughs> and so this was part of Britain's colonial model. They did this all over the world. They did this in Asia. They did this in South Asia. They did this in Africa. They did this. I mean, a lot of European countries were doing it. It was very de rigueur at the time yeah. to... It was like, well, well, Great Britain's doing it, so France got to do it. Too. Absolutely. But, but Britain was definitely doing it the best, or I mean, the most effectively. <laughs> they were doing it... it Pretty much everywhere you could think of, geographically like, speaking, around the world. Great Britain was like the Michael Jordan of imperialism. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> they set up shop, establish um, a concern or, or a company, an incorporated interest, and then basically let that interest loose to capitalize effectively, bringing all the profits back to the, um, to the crown. Like a sweet gig. Yeah, sweet so, deal for and, GB. A sweet bloody deal. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, for them, it certainly was. And for the government, in the meantime, they didn't really need to worry about administrating these far-flung reaches of their empire because they had people who were seeking profit within that, and it's kind of a natural mechanism that does their work for them in a lot of ways. So this is kind of the blueprint that they're working with all around the world, and uh, Canada, or what was to become Canada, was no different. Uh the within Rupert's land, three hundred thousand acres, which is effectively three hundred thousand football fields, <laughs> wow, or, or just shy of that, Sounds like a um, is area. granted to a Scotsman, Thomas Douglas, a single Scotsman, the fifth Earl of Selkirk. How's he supposed to tend all that land to use as a colonization project? Because oh, he's going to colonize <laughs> the fuck out of it. Nice, okay. And without getting too much into why he has uh, people to offer to this colonization project. At the same time, there was something called the Highland Resettlement, or around the same time, something called the Highland Resettlement was taking place in Scotland, which was, as I understand it, a class-driven or landowner versus not landowner-driven. Yeah, this is like the tail end of, not feudalism, but like still like sort of like a landed gentry and then the peasants who Exactly. The so if you owned the, the land... The proto-working class, if you will. Or you had standing in Scotland, then you probably stayed and probably kept land. If you didn't, then you got pushed off because they were using it for capitalism. Yep. Um, and all those people who were displaced during Highland resettlement had to go somewhere. And they formed part of the cohort that would come and settle in the new the new world at that time. In any case, the Red River, uh, the Red R River Colony, pardon me, is established in 1811 by Thomas Douglas. It is extremely tough going. If you think that the Scottish Highlands are rugged, yeah, <laughs> come yeah. come to Shield Country, oh. <laughs> come to the you know, come to Rupert's Land. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't easy for settlers. Um, amongst the settlers, uh, English speaking, S Scottish English, etc., and French speaking Europeans, there were also Métis, and there were indigenous inhabitants of that land mm -hmm. who were already there. And the Métis was the was the largest um, indigenous population in the region. Um, it mm. was. It became 
probably one of the more significant populations in that region, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, what was happening, and this is all quite gradual, but as the settlers came in, the Métis included, uh, the Métis by definition had to be at least a generation or more in North America because mm -hmm. they were effectively French or English-speaking European father with an indigenous mother. Right. And the resulting generation and henceforth became Métis. And so there's this mixing uh, pot that's going on in the Red River colony. However, indigenous, purely indigenous populations were not welcomed by as a matter of policy. Right. So they were being shunted off sy systematically into into reserves. And so was this mm -hmm. is this post treaty or is this still before the this were this started? is post treaty okay. and and that plays into some of the events that will occur later right, on okay. in the story. So uh, and under uh, I guess underpinning all of this as well uh, this the displacement of the indigenous residents in the area the new settlers uh, there is a severe and escalating bison decline in the region. Gee, yeah. I wonder what happened. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Too many people trying to feed off of the same resource. Mm -hmm. And where and it just was... Just throwing most of it away. Where it was previously yeah. sustainable and also handled quite pragmatically mm -hmm. in terms of how the bison kill were used, th those rules kind of got thrown out as the traditional approaches to the hunt were, right. were, were scuppered in favor of more efficient more profitable yeah. ways because was hudson bay were they just like killing it for the fur and then just being like whatever or that would be that was what the the hudson bay company and northwest uh company were encouraging simply because all they really wanted were the pelts yeah. right for the most part there were some other aspects of uh you know a, a carcass that they would utilize but it was like not even close maybe. to as much as the metis would <clears throat> and and not even close to as much as, as the indigenous right. hunters would. Yeah. Because they could use everything. They could find a use for basically every well, part of the animal. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. That's kind of a meme, but yeah, it was it was true. For sure. So Anish I, yeah. Um Anishinaabe residents, which is um what I understand the the indigenous population of the area were referred to as and across the plains, uh, viewed at that time reportedly uh, the incoming settlers as being a potential good omen. I mean, they had had kind of a rough time. They had seen a lot of their neighbors, a lot of the other Plains peoples be shunted off into these reserves. The bison were not running in as, in as large mm. numbers as they had previously. And so they were like, oh, hey, look, there's some neighbors. They are kind of dependent a little bit at this stage yeah. and therefore yeah. a bit friendly. Because that was just how they... And this could be okay. You know, we could figure this out that's a lot of like that's how in those times tribes would meet other tribes and trading was a big part of like how you survive trading with other absolutely yeah. for mutual so, benefit yeah so yes. meeting a new it would be i imagine they would view this as meeting a new tribe that has like more goods to offer and trade with initially exactly and we're going to get back to that too what you're describing is a core principle of planes mm. existence mm-hmm and we are seeing the beginning of the end of that underpinning the lifestyle in the in the plains right amongst settlers of the red river are metis heritage of european fathers indigenous mothers as i explained the history of the fur trade is interwoven with that of the metis people effectively hudson bay company northwest 
company used for lack of a better way to describe it, or maybe a better nuanced <laughs> way of describing it, used indigenous women yeah. as a conduit through which to conduct business. So traders, European traders would come over, form relationships with, with tribes or with groups, with individuals, and uh, partner with women, eventually through marriage, and then commence in commerce on that basis. And the, and the women... Um, who resided in the area and and this was occurring even further east as well and in many cases you know a lot of Métis by definition came from what was then French Canada too mm -hmm. yeah. uh, they came westwards as they were basically disenfranchised and and shunted out of the land that they were living on and so many Métis settled in Red River and they were a part of a, a multi-generational effort to become a part of the local population for for foreigners, for white Europeans, French-speaking or English-speaking. And the women in these communities were absolutely integral the, through a, what, is, um, what is referred to as kinship, which is exactly what you were describing, Wes. Mm. Basically, mutual benefit uh, between tribes, between groups, there would be these strong relationships that were multifaceted and multi-layered and very complex but constructive because everybody knew that they all needed to survive you have a strong hunt one year and you know the tribe down this down the river doesn't have such a strong hunt that year you kind of yeah. share resources and then the next year they yeah. reciprocate. If you don't have a strong hunt, that means they'll help you back. Exactly, right? exactly. I mean, this times yeah. a thousand yeah. across like a spider web of, of connections believe, in the plane. I believe that has been referred to as mutualism. Absolutely. Well, uh, it was... Sounds, among other things. It sounds just, like a nice... Well, like a nice way to do things. It's and it sounds shocking, yeah. <laughs> but they didn't consult any white people before they came up with this idea. What? Yeah, the indigenous people came. You up mean with they didn't run this by the queen? The principle of kinship, all on their own. I don't think the queen would have liked this. <laughs> Wild. One. Yeah, wacky. So it totally worked it's, for them. It's almost as if they had like a distinct culture for that developed up parallel to European culture for almost as much time. Yeah, that was functional <laughs> and constructive. And, and much less ecologically damaging. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. In, so in most cases. So basically, what these European traders, who would ultimately be um, agents of the fur trading companies, effectively, because that's what they were doing, was turning around and selling their pelts to Hudson's Bay Company. But ultimately, what they were doing was co-opting this kinship network through the mm. females, and then using it to their advantage and capitalizing right. and initially um indigenous females and um and i think indigenous groups in general because of their history of approaching relationships from the basis of kinship were open to this because they didn't see yeah. the threat they felt that there was something mutual that could be achieved here um obviously that wasn't what no. the Europeans yeah. had in mind. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, eventually they learned their lesson and they stopped as openly um, associating and assisting the Europeans. But, you know, the Métis already existed. Métis people already existed. Yeah. There was no undoing that. And the Métis uh, people also at that stage had a genealogy of their own. Yeah. It was, you know, the cat was out of the bag. 
So this is kind of one of the complexities that's going on underneath the surface here. Um, it's actually um, a complexity that doesn't get, um, I think, enough detail or enough nuance um, fed into it when you do hear narratives about pre-colonial well, times. The way, like, um, like, yeah, like I, we, like when I'm from Alberta, which is quite far away from here, but we, there is an official term for Métis in Canada, which generally has come in popular vernacular to mean anyone who is of both indigenous and European heritage. Right. Um, and, and it's a French word because like, yeah, specifically they were mostly French to begin with. And that's where the word came from. But it's sort of like the Métis were um, a much, like it was a specific, it was a, I don't want to say specific thing, but it, it was like, yeah, the Métis were like a specific population originally. Um, right. That Absolutely. was, that was, I don't want to say localized. Like, I think, I don't know if the, like, I don't know the exact history of the term, whether it just became the term that encompassed everything or whether it was sort of like applied in one place first. And then later, I guess we might get into some of that, but. Well, I think, I think you're onto something. So I do think that it originated in French Canada. Yeah. I do think that Métis um, in other parts of what was to become Canada did have, unless they were kind of strictly English speaking Métis, um, English and indigenous background they may not identify as strongly with the french canadian aspect well, that's the thing, of that there's a ta- there's, but the label yeah. was still applied since they were what was referred to at that at that point as a half breed well and you got to remember mm-hmm. like too like our government still refers to indigenous people as a, a different i word like officially in their exactly. official legal language and that's, like as in and the act Métis yeah. is also in there in a legal way that's not necessarily a what the common vernacular is in english and french speaking canada be because yeah they're like i i grew up with kids who were technically metis under the law but they wouldn't consider themselves their metis in that sense right because like that's not what a metis cult metis is its own distinct culture right as opposed to just being anyone who is both european and indigenous mm-hmm. right like heritage yeah and i would take that a step further and say that Métis is several distinct cultures. Right, exactly. Mm. That's a really and, good point. And self-identifying within one of those or within the the spectrum of Métis cultures is what is what we're referring to, I guess, yeah. when we talk about the Métis people mm. today. Well, it's even, that's true of like strictly indigenous people too. Exactly. Like, yes, there's the Anishinaabe, but that's actually a number of, of cultures within a larger umbrella culture that they don't even all necessarily refer to themselves as Anishinaabe. For sure. Et cetera. For et cetera, sure. Right? And this speaks to the, exactly the point that I, um, I guess, was trying to make with this particular part, which is that the nuances of how these peoples are referred to, the, the nomenclature, <laughs> the technical names, the, the legal names in, in a, in a in government a very, document. A, in a colonial act. European government. Exactly. Um, these things, as well as the history of this time, all gloss over the myriad connections and interconnectivity of these populations, yeah. uh, and which which implies an absolute um, mixing and crossing over of families, of groups, of communities. So it's much more nuanced and um, and kind of complex than any than any real uh, formal account right, ten, tends to capture. And so this is, um, yeah, this is where we, this is where we stand 
um, as we introduce our second banana, Gabriel Ooh. Dumont. Gabriel Dumont. He was born into the Métis community in Red River in 1837 to a prominent Francophone hunting family. Um, hunting, being a hunting family was significant at that time as yeah. it was a primary means of existence and even actually a, a really badass one. Mm -hmm. uh, you could both make a lot of money at that time um, being a hunting family or, or with the hunt especially as uh, as Hudson Bay Company and kind of corporate interests were coming in saying, whoa, this is a huge commodity. Like, let's get more people to sell us their pelts kind mm -hmm. of thing. If you were already an expert at doing that, basically you could print money. Yeah. Um, but at the same time... So it, what you're saying is the, the, the Métis are the Instagram influencers of the 1800s. Exactly. <laughs> you nailed it. Thank you for relating it to something contemporary. Teens, listen show. to our yes. podcast, please. Please, we're begging you. Please, teens, make us cool. Um, yeah. At the peak of his influence, Gabriel Dumont is appointed general adjutant of the provisional government of Saskatchewan during the Northwest Rebellion. Uh, having served as a diplomat, formal counsel, and informal community leader and warrior for the Plains Métis people and their allies, pretty much throughout his whole life. He was a ferryman, expert marksman, hunter, bowsman, horseman, and a nearly unbeatable billiards player. Whoa. Whoa this guy billiards. would be fucking, this guy would be full stats in Red Where Dead Where is the movie? Dude. Where is the yeah. fucking movie? Yeah. He, he was known as Master of the Plains. That's a bomb-ass title. I don't think too many other people got that title. No. He was well acquainted with most Plains peoples, um, having encountered them throughout his life as, a, um, as both a trader and a hunter, and also just through the natural um, kinship connections that his right. family fostered and that he took and further fostered during his life. Um, he mastered the cultures and languages of the Plains, he develops a command of the way of living on the land and amongst Plains people that few were able to rival uh, his, his kind of fluency in these wow. skills. And he, gets, he, he begins to gain fame as, um, as a Plains person, as, a, as an individual in the community who is not to be trifled with. He has a deadly shot. And he carries around his both famous and infamous gun. He does look a badass when he holds his gun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's his short hunting rifle that he named Le Petit. Le Petit. Oh. And the small, the very small. It is my gun. He, it, I just realized I can safely do a French accent. <laughs> like what? I can't do a voice for like I can't do a voice for the. Uh, but Louis Riel, oui, oui. <laughs> I, I'm a master of the plains. All right, I'll stop. Found it. <laughs> he, um, yeah, so him and Le Petit are a force to be reckoned with. They have a reputation. It's, it's funny that you met. Wes held up his photo for us to see. And it's like, you know, there's like the pop culture idea of what a badass looks like. <laughs> it's like not like, it's like. It's not like, quite there. You, no, but like, that's the thing is like, there's always this pop culture idea of what a badass looks like. But then when you actually like, cause there are people who just like, 
you can tell like don't fuck with them and they don't look like that per yeah se, very unassuming but there are some say. looks and it's just like you can just tell that guy does not give a fuck no. and he's just like <laughs> he will murder you yeah but he's also probably actually a chill dude as long as you don't fuck with his shit he looks sure. super chill but yeah just yeah. the way he's cradling his gun just looks like yeah i don't and it is a very petite gun it is yeah. <laughs> everybody go look up gabriel dumont on wikipedia right now <laughs> And so we get into our top banana, La Meilleure Banane, Louis Real. Um, as with most top bananas, you know, kind of don't need to introduce Louis Real all that much. As you said, studied in high school. I mean, probably haven't studied him since high school, though, yeah, <laughs> with that no. said. No. But um, yeah, Louis Real, the, life, uh, the lifelong professed defender of the legal status and human rights of the Métis people possibly the most written about and academically studied figure in Canadian history yeah. due wow. to his high profile divisive public persona um, and the impact that his actions and, um, and subsequent actions that he set in motion yeah. had on the growing colonial project in Canada. He has, you know, depending on who you talk to, he has a legacy as an icon and folk hero, an SJW. <laughs> From another perspective, he has a legacy of, uh, as a belligerent half-bred agitator on behalf of a people <laughs> that a burgeoning state would have rather ignored. Also, an SJW. <laughs> both fucking the, cook. Both, <laughs> both in the pejorative and complimentary sense. <laughs> started a rebellion against the government. <laughs> and from another viewpoint still, he has a legacy as a traitor to the cause of the Métis people. Um, a leader that routinely gave up tactical advantage in battle needlessly a leader that showed needlessly. more mercy than you, the enemy ever would yeah well. um and even going so far as to allege that he betrayed his people and would sell out for whatever he could get once he was able to negotiate behind closed doors now so if he was a white man we would be saying just this man was very complex right yeah. he had many facets of course That's a little two-faced study exactly <laughs> exactly um i mean there are a lot of opinions about right about louis and his legacy i don't happen to believe that he myself that he intentionally betrayed his people i feel like there are a lot of other factors at play um, and also, ultimately, as we will find out later in the episode, he does actually achieve status for the Métis people. Oh. Um, mm. So he does not fail. <laughs> oh, okay. um, he does in various senses, but ultimately, there is a lot that is owed to the efforts that that man, um, as well yeah. as Gabriel Dumont, put forward on behalf of, of his people. In any case... Um, he, it, there's no, however, however much you want to dispute his legacy, there's no disputing or few would dispute that he was a seasoned politician and diplomat, an advocate for freedom and safety to the Métis, to the Métis people in an extremely turbulent era on the plains. Yeah. He was a dedicated Catholic and a family man, proponent of diversity within communities, viewing that as a strength as opposed to a weakness and was also allegedly prone to excited outbursts and fever dreams prompted either by mental illness, a deep spiritual self-awareness, or perhaps a combination of the two. And so like a 16 year old Catholic girl, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, like, I, like that. Yeah. I thought like 
Catholicism has a weird sort of not secret history of mysticism, but very like, I mean, they don't even necessarily like to call it mysticism, especially nowadays, but like, yeah, like, like Christian mysticism is like a really interesting topic for me that sort of like is mostly ignored, especially now, like there's not much of it anymore as it, as it was in like medieval time and the high middle ages and stuff. But, um, it's, it's interesting to see the like quiet legacy of that, especially, I don't know, Catholicism seems particularly prone to it, maybe because of saints and the sort, a lot of saints were mystics. Oh yeah. And like, I just, that's interesting that he was of a devout Catholic too. Oh, totally. Um, well, he, so. um, well, Louis has a brush, at least one brush, according to him with catholic mysticism interesting is mysticism just where you like you say like nature is kind of like a deity or i know it's like a a combination of supernatural occurrences and spirituality yeah it's really former religious spirituality it's sort of more of a set of traits of 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 various belief systems Hmm. um and like a and a and a set of rituals and behaviors um I yeah right. I don't I don't know how exactly I'm sure like someone yeah. someone more whatever it, like but would you think of like the whatever the thing where you eat the body of Christ the sacrament sacrament thank yeah. you would you think of that as mysticism I mean I a, would it is kind like of, almost yeah. like a mysticism in a way like tra- especially like transformation is sort of I think like the core of mysticism in a way right um or at least like and like and uh uh religious ecstasy i think is a big part of mysticism. yeah that's yes what they're saying or even just believing that you can speak to god yeah yeah that's kind of your your thoughts okay like sounds pretty mystical i think yeah totally a good way to put it um in any case louis real gained notoriety as a as an aspiring if not a quite effective soothsayer and overall a fairly eccentric dude even amongst his supporters. So what you're saying is his class would be paladin. <laughs> he seems like a pa- or he could be a cleric, but uh, seems like like definitely Gabriel seems like a bit more maybe a fighter or a ranger. And yes. Louis, oh, yeah. Louis yes. is the Louis is the cleric or the paladin, depending. For sure, for sure, it's really interesting, and I have to um, sidebar on this right now because it was it just resonated so deeply as i was reading the epilogue to a joseph boyden book about louis riel and gabriel dumont um at the beginning of the epilogue he basically states what i had been thinking the whole book and he states it in a way that i was like get out of my mind (laughs) at the end of (laughs) get out of my head joseph boyden (laughs) the first thing that he says is that there's way too much information about these people particularly louis riel right it's very daunting to to speak about the subject, which I completely agree with. And yeah, if Joseph yeah, Boyden guys, says like, it. I don't know if you guys can tell, but Craig's like doing a lot more like twick ticks with his hands and stuff. He feels, he seems clearly, this, oh, yeah. is, a, this, this... is a fucking intense subject jazzed. to talk about. I'm jazzed. Yeah. Um, and then the, the second thing that, that comes out of his epilogue that really resonated with me was that he very early on in studying these two men um, realized that Basically, Gabriel Dumont is the archetype for the indigenous aspect of the Métis. And oh, Louis Rial is the white archetype wow. of the Métis. And mm. I was blown away when I read that because I was like, this is, it, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And I'm glad he said it. <laughs> so yeah, wow. I don't have to and I can just paraphrase him. But um, yes, very much what you said. Really so... Let's get into Gabriel's early life, uh, Plains pedigree. 
Gabriel was one of six siblings in his generation of Dumonts. He grew up on the plains, traveling back and forth, tracking the bison, learning how to hunt, learning skills of the land. He broke his first horse at age 10. Oh. Wow. <laughs> he, like he broke it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, like, he rode it until it the broke. shit out of these horses. <laughs> <laughs> but you literally have to ride it until the horse is like, okay, you're my, bo- you're my boss now. <laughs> yeah. It's wow, yeah. crazy. Which is pretty impressive for a 10-year-old. You're my daddy. Now. You're my horse daddy. <laughs> yeah. He was forced into military action as a teenager at the age of uh, 13 or 14, I believe, um, in what became the oh, Battle of Grand Couteau successfully defending 13. a large Métis encampment against a larger Dakota war party when um, when his party encountered them out on a hunt. And well, I guess, so that's like sort of indigenous warfare. Like, I guess it would sort of, wouldn't be that much different at this, like, other than the just sheer overwhelmingness of like colonial forces, like, um, a, what, like a war between Métis and, and, and Dakota. So... Yeah, so the sorry is the does this mean the Dakota people or like a, a war the, party from Dakota? The Sioux who right were from Dakota, it's described as a Dakota war party, but okay. comprised of of Sioux nation. Okay, um, and they were not hunting; they were a war party, so they were right. doing what they were doing, and uh, would get, they have had? They, so they probably would have had like rifles and stuff at this point too, right? Yep, absolutely. Because yeah. yeah, and so uh, and, and the Dumonts, including Gabriel and the rest of the party, uh, successfully fended them off, um, which only served to bolster his fame further. Um, and his yeah. family reputation was that um, was was really strong already. So to kind of overcome even that as an individual within the Dumont family was pretty yeah. impressive for Gabriel. Shining um, star. And a yeah. At that st- shining stars. At that stage, he's stars already, fields, right? he's already birthing <laughs> myths. He's already starting rumors. Um, he, it, he can shoot a duck's head off at a hundred paces. <laughs> I'm, a... I'm not sure if he has Le Petit at this stage. That's, a, oh, okay. but... that's an anime that's real... trick yeah, for very sure. Much. That's almost yeah. as good as Doc like, Brown. Wah, he shot the duck with the hell yeah. of a duck at 100 paces. Nosebleed. <laughs> he has uh, the ability to call bison by mini- by mimicking Ooh, the nice. the bull grunts and the cow calls. Holy shit. Um, so he's got some gravitas. He's got some skills. He's, you know, he's coming into his own. He's yeah. he's becoming a man of the plains. He's got uh, skills. The but Dumont... Not yet the master of the plains. <laughs> The, the Dumont family is uh, very successful in the pemmican trade and using the hunting skills they've developed over generations and the Plains diplomacy and kinship connections that we discussed earlier, integral to Plains life, um, also very invaluable in trade. Um, you know, Gabriel can't help but master all of these skills and become kind of the, um, you know, the, the primary person that people come to when they have questions about the hunt, basically the the leader of the hunt, which he isn't yet at this stage, but he does become at age 25, is is both a symbolic and practical role in Mm -hmm. Plains communities, uh, basically because you are the one in charge of where the hunters, the the hunting group go, um, how they hunt, how they approach it. And um, when there isn't a hunt, 
people kind of defer to the same kind of loose not or not loose hierarchy yeah. in terms of making decisions about the community. Right. So he's like a de facto leader already. Yet. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So his his skills in in coordinating and managing the hunt efforts also translate into you know making the society the the wider community work. Um, so this is a big this is a big position for him to occupy. It's also a position that he was born more or less to do from his family background. Um, and at the age of 25, he becomes the leader of the hunt. And this lifestyle provides uh, continued wealth for, for a time and definitely some stability while the bison remain. But the bison do not remain indefinitely. Because is that their primary food source, bison? Or is totally. it? Totally. Yeah. It is, okay. Uh, so pemmican, which is a high fat, high protein um, kind of, I don't want to say residual product of. Oh the bison hunt but it basically is it's like the guts and the fat and the very high in protein so it's a it's like turned into a form of i don't want to say beef jerky gut jerky it's like they mix it with um tripe tripe uh, jerky totally and when you're in the middle of you know the northeastern prairies in the winter time and it's winter time and you need some you need some protein like yeah like it's like taking taking trail mix or like mouse and pemmican it's basically like trail mix, but with not, made yeah. of buffalo guts and berries. That'll last you. So they, um, they're making a really good trade. The Dumont family is making a really good trade on, on pemmican. And the, the bison hunt remains for the time being. And so they're sitting pretty. Can they tell at this point that the <clears throat> bison maybe are like, or are they just, it's the getting still going well? It's getting, it's getting to that point. I mean, I, my understanding is that at the turn of the century or just after when the Red River Colony was established, it was already on the decline. Mm -hmm. There was already a noticeable decline and within a half century or less, it was. So they're, they're probably already primed. That's like, they need to seek out, they need to do more trading maybe in order to survive or something like that. For sure. Go a bit further. Also a lot of, you know, a lot of the local indigenous um, communities that would have been more readily um, available to trade with had been shunted off into reserve or areas just dying off because they didn't have mm-hmm. exactly like, you, like at least the Métis have like a standing in colonial society like a lot of these well full, not yet well, okay or that's right I guess like not at least they have a thing with the Hudson's Bay right like for sure and that's and like the tr- that's the thing is like these traditional the just full indigenous peoples didn't they were still trying to live off the land and they would like a lot of them didn't want to go crowd into cities or whatever. And yeah, then when they killed the bison, it just meant like the less of them could survive. Exactly. Absolutely. So we, we haven't said the word genocide yet actually. And I think like, Oh yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This was genocide. Like we've, there's been a lot of talk about genocide recently, uh, including some really bullshit things said by a lot of people, but yeah, this was this was such a like we talked about this in a little in uh, the the Peter Tosh episode too of like the absolute like destruction that colonialism wreaked on especially indigenous peoples of the Americas was just like so much was lost. Right. And are you saying like their interbreeding was like a form of genocide or no the that... the the destruction of the buffalo the overhunting of the yeah. buffalo was oh. a form of gen- was part of the genocide. Like taking away their food source, like led to their starvation. Yeah, because it was like their the whole genocide. culture. Like yeah. their culture was built around this. Food yes, source. yes. And it, I, I, it wasn't always intentional, but it wasn't always completely accidental either. Right, and I, I think at that time they probably viewed it as a happy accident. Yeah, 
but basically their breeding together was weaponized against themselves yeah yeah by the europeans for profit well it's like we like it's yeah, like they created eventually for a dominion. whole separate culture to displace to to in a way enough in order to literally make money off them make money off the the, yeah. the resources of the area well, and, and and if, money or reason like capital essentially effectively um yeah a, an entirely separate but related culture wedged in between the europeans and the indigenous inhabitants yeah. that was then turned on itself which is I guess we're going to get yeah. into disgustingly that. evil. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we actually we, oh totally we thank use you. the word genocide like, yep. and we call that call the spade a spade. Absolutely, um, the genocide is ongoing. FYI, it is, <laughs> and it's multifaceted. Yeah. So Gabriel marries a well reputed and accomplished woman of the plains in her own right, Madeline Wilkie, in 1858. Madeline through her life is a teacher adoptive mother rugged adventurer alongside her intimate and trusted companion gabriel she was a highly in she was highly involved and she in, was metis as well yes she was highly involved in the day-to-day -day of the dumont household which again was a significant prairie family and the larger community due to her own personal and family position um, herself an esteemed member of a well-known hunting family Madeline often acted as a nurse in the community and was a compassionate and welcoming caregiver to strangers and growing numbers of disenfranchised Plains peoples due to the genocide yep. that was unfolding. Sounds like a good person. Yeah, she was incredible from all accounts um, and had a really impressive father too. Like Gabriel, her father, Chief Wilkie, was a significant fi uh, figure in the Métis story on the plains. Uh, he was a strong voice for peace and harmony amongst the plains peoples, serving as hunt leader himself or at around the time that Gabriel was born. The kinship connections between the two families in particular, but indeed uh, between the two families amongst the wider community were nothing short of impressive, right. but those connections and their common background as uh, leading families in the hunt made them a really good fit so yeah okay. was this like a full-on arranged no thing, or i was from this... from what i know i it was just a social like it was probably encouraged for sure yeah um but i don't know like they I, were both I can't sort of say the same yeah. the same part of their community they both had the same it makes like it's of course they'd naturally gravitate but i mean again like i don't want to like to entirely knock arranged marriages either i think like no and like there's cultural precedence for them and like that's the thing is like even you up learn until to love each other really the turn of like the last century or so uh marriages were more weren't necessarily arranged in the way we think of like an arranged marriage where two people at eight years old it's like yeah you're gonna marry each other someday but they were there was a lot more formalized structures to them and in who married who and yeah, like certain things were encouraged and mm -hmm. it wasn't always like you have to marry this person. It was like, well, as long as you marry this kind of person or this class of person or whatever, right. like mm -hmm. that's what we want. Yeah. So like, that's the thing. It's like and marriage imagine, has only recently become under sort of like. Well, you imagine the more resources your family has, the more important like that kind of a arrangement might. Be. Well, and not just resources, but it is like, yeah, like in a community, a survival community like this one where there's a lot depends on just like 
surviving and making sure certain people have certain skills for sure to continue that survival it's like yeah you want to definitely yeah that may be a natural impulse like someone may just think like yeah i don't want to marry a woman who can't come out on if i'm going to be on a bison hunt for you know however many months a year i don't want to be with someone who can't do that with me right it's just material constraints too right or who looks at me sideways when i say i'm going out for a couple months yeah exactly yeah totally well this this but i mean what you're describing is very much in line with what is referred to at that time as kinship yeah and still and and still is and that's the principle is that is there mutual benefit here is it is it good for the wider community is it you know beneficial for the two individuals involved and Mm -hmm. their immediate families and then Mm -hmm. yes 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 and then they and then it goes ahead so would that be termed an arranged marriage maybe maybe not effectively it probably was you know or whatever right? but it was yeah. such a good fit yeah. and it was such a like, well and this it, is why i didn't want to sit, make it sound like i was like is this an arranged marriage because like there are arrangements of right. unions <clears throat> and marriages and that kind of stuff that are mm-hmm. beneficial to all parties and nobody is unhappy with them so what mm-hmm. is what is the problem there yeah, right totally it sounds like they're especially real. in a culture that is so different from what most of us that would be either making or listening to this podcast live in right so, absolutely but they're 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 like a total power couple, right? Oh, they are dude. A power couple. Exactly. Thank like, you, Wes. They're Thank like you for bringing Bay that up. right here. Yeah. <laughs> they are an absolute prairie or plains power couple. Right on. Um, so the Wilkies and the Dumonts, along with other important families in the region, increasingly exert themselves and their kinship networks through various channels in so many different kinds of ways during this time in order to try and address mm-hmm. the crisis that's that's facing the wider plains community and this takes so many different shapes this takes you know petitions this takes letters sent to authorities letters sent to the hudson bay company letters sent to ottawa letters sent to you know red river authorities um they're trying to address the issues that they're seeing unfold in terms of the the suffering of the people around them Mm -hmm. and the and the diminishing returns that they're getting from their traditional activities in as many ways as they can think of and not many of them are working Uh, in any case gabriel continues to emerge as a significant leader in the metis community in red river and from the early 1860s holds the role of leader of the hunt which i mentioned earlier from age 25 which is pretty badass Uh, totally he was deeply aware of the receding tide of the nearly extinguished bison population for reasons we discussed he offers his formidable skills uh, alternatively for hire to various newcomers to the area in order to try and supplement the transition. So to... this is like other plains people are sort of coming to this area. Right. Exactly. So what was it about Red River? I don't know if we kind of discussed that. Was it just that it was close to the bison or was it? What do you mean? What it? What was it about it? Well, it was established and then it seems like people are sort of come, like, especially like people who weren't necessarily local to the area are coming here is it because of the metis community there or is it because red river is at a like like a location that's very like well it's an ongoing colonization project Uh, so there are people coming in the population to it too well the trade is based through there okay okay yeah right in in large part um more people are coming more europeans are coming right more metis are coming and 
some indigenous populations are also finding themselves displaced or um, or in a situation where they end up settling in the Red right, River yeah. area as well. So there are a lot of different uh, people with, from a lot of different backgrounds, actually probably around a, a half a dozen or so, but they all find themselves in this area and the conditions are not improving. Yeah. There's also this kind of sword dangling over them whereby nobody has a claim to the land that they're on with the exception of Europeans. Yeah. That normally ends well. Totally. It's ending <laughs> well every single time. I don't know what you're talking about. So, um, so eventually, and we're going to, we're about to get into kind of a definitive, uh, event in the history of the Red River, um, settlement, but needless to say, Gabriel is not involved that <laughs> so 1970 louis real 1970 or sorry 1870 pardon me whoa <laughs> hold on <laughs> it's like it was yesterday yes around 1870 louis real and red river and metis leadership basically establish a provisional government in the red river settlement this is due to the lack of response from the government mm -hmm. from authorities to their petitions to have their land claims basically formalized so they right. can understand that the land that they're on is the land that they can stay on they can farm they can pursue agricultural means of existence in the face of the declining bison population um, they are routinely ignored and as a result the provisional government is formed uh. Basically, what the the idea of the provisional government is to be able to gather support and power to be able to negotiate on some sort of stable footing with the government oh. and get the land claims recognized. Oh, so it's good. It, no, it's a great thing. Oh, okay. It, it, su <laughs> it sucks that they have to resort to that yeah. because it means that they're being ignored as right. people on the yeah. land um, and people that... <clears throat> the, gover the government in Ottawa knows perfectly well that they're there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just ignoring them. Yeah. And this is a passive genocidal yeah. technique, effectively, in those Cause, conditions. Because this is where they were originally pushed to, like from like the Rupert's Land territory, right? Where yes. They were yeah, pushed to the Red River colony. Well, yeah. some were pushed. Yeah. Some were born there. Or, yeah. Like um so the indigenous population that resided in and around the red river settlement area were largely pushed out into reserves oh, okay the metis came from the east to the red river settlement the europeans also came from the east to the red river settlement right and these are the main populations that are at play here mm -hmm. in this area yeah and uh, of the of these communities the provisional government is ostensibly trying to represent everyone and get their land claims mm -hmm. recognized right for everyone who yeah. doesn't who doesn't have any um uh, recognition from the the government in ottawa at that time that sounds like a challenge yeah <laughs> yeah a little and um, so the same deaf ear from ottawa that louis real and metis leadership and uh, red river leadership in general recognize as being the treatment that Ottawa provides to indigenous people yeah. is the same tactic that they're using for the Métis. And Louis sees this as uh, an injustice. 
he sees the the treatment of the indigenous people as an injustice as well, but he's not indigenous. He's yeah. Métis. So from his perspective, from all reports, he is trying to advocate for his people. Yeah. And a way, and this is a little bit contentious too. Um, I don't think it's contentious in terms of whether or not this was the case, but it is kind of a controversial, I guess, subject. But he thinks that he can leverage the Métis' Europeanness yeah. to try and give them standing with the government in Ottawa. Um, which well, was, and he, I mean, he's probably right to a certain extent. Sure, but it requires um, that he contrast, for example, yes. indigenous identity with Métis identity, yeah. it, which it brings in an, an element of racism, which yeah, is kind of a sticky... identity. Totally. And, yeah. In any case, this is what he's trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, the provisional government in Red River is explicitly socialist. Like it, the one that they found. Yeah, okay. The, yeah. They, um, they do not have pluralistic support however they they seek to represent everyone right so if you were a white european english-speaking or french and you had a, a claim or you had um, a promise of a claim to the land they would have in recognized the red, it they would they have, have like or respected it they or would whatever. have still wanted to to um, honor that to advocate yeah. your interests mm -hmm. as part of the larger government so they're trying to get everyone in the fold here mm -hmm. Uh, they were still ignored. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, I mean, especially like the white settlers in the area, the European settlers aren't just aren't going to give a fuck because it's like, no, and... like, like at best they're going to be like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. If somehow this guy pulls this off, I don't I'll want to do have whatever, said no. Yeah. But like, I am not going to like support this shit and get killed over. Totally. Uh, like I'm a I'm Métis person's like. Or sign a deal where it's like, Bullshit. yeah, this is yours until we want it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, and I mean, you, you've captured the sentiment, I think, pretty well. A lot of w white settlers in Red River were kind of like, if I grin and smile and like shake your hand, will you not shoot me when you take over <laughs> everything? Yeah, exactly. Right. Kind of going along well, with it. Well, and I'm sure there were plenty of them that were also like this is never going to fucking happen. Like, as in like, for sure. Just like, let this die down. Started well, I'm sure there were some people who were ready to not be ruled over by someone who wasn't European. You yeah. Know? Like that's part of it. Too. Interesting. You should bring that up. Oh boy. So what the, what the red river. I love being right about <laughs> genocide. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> what I understand the red river rebellion to uh, be referring to versus the Red River Resistance is right. the white, primarily English-speaking um, Europeans organizing and revolting against the provisional government in Red oh River. Oh, my God. And so they are basically trying to achieve some semblance of recognition for the population in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. It's not panning out. As they're waiting for a response, trying to kind of ratchet up the urgency, trying to underline their demands more, saying, listen, like, th we have this many people. We Every time we write back to you, Johnny McDonald, we have more and more people who are disenfranchised looking for, yeah, you know, some sort of claim, some sort of stability in this country that you're forming. Like, as, as Louis Riel, he's kind of imploring this, this great man, this person who is... 
uh, expanding the Dominion of Canada to to let the Métis people into the fold, to let the Red River mm-hmm. population into the fold, right. and and he's ignoring them. So mm, not cool, Johnny. Before there can be any sort of physical I presence. I'm on the five dollar bill. <laughs> question. This that. went different. It could have been. Yeah. Could have happened. Yeah. Uh, so while. Um, any sort of physical response is still making its way from Ottawa. The resistance, the white European uh, revolt against the provisional government sparks off. And in order to put down this revolt, the provisional government led by Louis Riel, that again, Gabriel Dumont is not involved with at all. Uh, Interesting. They're, they're forced to take some prisoners like not involved with us in like yeah he, whatever or like just um so he says that he approached Louis Riel to offer his support offer his services master the planes and all uh there's no actual record of that having taken place right and we'll get to it later but Louis does not recall him having approached him mm. they don't meet until mm. years later Right, okay, interesting. Yeah. So at this time, the revolt has, has kind of been put down temporarily. Canadian forces, armed forces, ostensibly, or maybe the RCMP, are on the way, but they haven't arrived yet. And so the provisional government takes justice into their own hands. It Ooh. puts one of the culprits of the internal revolt in the Red River settlement on trial, finds him guilty, but holds back from executing him and says, while it's important to show that the provisional government is serious, and this is this is pure Louis And this Riel, is a European settler. Right? Is, is yes, it, yes. Yeah. So like, like an Ontarian, yeah, an English-speaking Ontarian. Yeah, I can see why they would be hesitant to just like, as much as they might want to viscerally yeah chop his head off like her head off. i don't know but yeah well it gets thicker well it, yeah it, it was a male and uh there were two prisoners in particular um that that there's an anecdote that kind of really stood out um the one prisoner was found guilty but was allowed leniency was not executed that's nice in reaction to that a second prisoner thomas scott berated the provisional government berated the court and insulted and absolutely expressed his utter disdain for Louis Riel and the Métis leadership for not having executed. Wow. His, um, his companion so much so that Louis says, you know what? Fuck it. Let's kill this guy. Damn. <laughs> and they end up, they do end up executing him. If he, if, if was a fucking guy. <laughs> well, that's the thing is he did not want to have to do that right yeah but i think it was just so much well it was like even like that challenge in the face of everything like like it's a court so like that's the like there's a whole social aspect to it right of like people are already looking at louis as this like badass leader mm-hmm. like you're gonna let this white boy fucking talk to you that way like i'm sure that was a sentiment of like his supporters and it's like well when you're in that position you're like, well, I can lose my support. I can maybe worry about going to trial for this in some future where I don't get executed on the battlefield. Or I can worry about how can I rally support from my biggest fans right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, this yeah. is exactly the conundrum 
that Louis puts himself yeah. in. Can't live like a punk in front of your mates. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. So needless to say, the execution of Thomas Scott would haunt Louis Riel for the rest like of his ghost, days. Like an actual Thomas Scott was a ghost. <laughs> Ooh, I'm sure if they made a fucking movie, they would make Thomas Scott's ghost the main character before they would be like, ah, it's like this. It's, oh my God. The movie opens with like Thomas Scott's head getting blown off. It's like, boop, stop. <laughs> Freeze frame. You're probably wondering how I got myself into this mess. And then it would just be the whole point of view would be like Thomas Scott's fucking ghost haunting Louis Riel the entire movie. Oh, yeah. that would be oh, oh man, would be terrible. There is some really severe foreshadowing going on with what you're talking oh, about. Man. Here. <laughs> so, um, so that whole the Thomas Scott affair unfolds, and um, I love that movie. I love that um, I love, uh, what's her name? Renee Russo. Renee Russo. Oh, nice. Good That's, good, yeah. Nice pull. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right about uh, what it bodes for Louis in the future in terms of, you know, potential repercussions. Mm-hmm. You're also right that it was a politically adept move in terms yeah. of gaining support from his existing supporters and the wider community and even the, the French community right. back in Quebec who at that time, Upper Canada, Lower Canada, they fucking hated each other. Yeah. And right. so they're like, that's our guy Ooh. shooting that Ontario dude yeah. or shooting that Upper Canadian. Shoot that, <laughs> shoot the English boy. Oh, he shot that English boy. I like him more every day. Oh, so that's, fo- what, that's what Quebec is. <laughs> so after the events at Red River in 1870, Louis has divided what was then Canada, certainly. So he has huge support amongst the French speakers, amongst the Métis, and he is absolutely... Again, a reason to play up the French part of the the Métis culture. And he is absolutely despised by English speakers and by the prevailing government. The whitest of white people. (laughs) In Canada. Um, He is obviously not allowed to stay and just be cool after the provisional government dissolves which happens as a result of the thomas scott incident and uh he does flee he is he's basically being pursued by english-speaking canadians who want revenge for him killing thomas scott he's also not on the best terms with the government but he so what was louis so louis was the head of this government yes he he formed it and he was more or less the the glue but then when he had thomas scott executed they a bunch of them were like get out well (laughs) they just like you need to go because we're gonna get in trouble if you're still here when well no but at at that stage at that stage yeah armed armed forces had showed up or or rcmp i'm not clear which and the the provisional government no longer i I don't know how much of a difference there was at that point yeah exactly different uh different floor in the same building yeah exactly. <laughs> so that the whole red river provisional government has fallen apart louis has fled and he well, comes back and runs for office in what? kind of an adjacent territory to ontario kind of like southern what is going to become manitoba wow um but at the same time as a result of the red river rebellion the Manitoba Act is passed. 
1870. So a postage stamp size, particularly compared to modern day Manitoba, but a postage stamp sized plot of land at the bottom of the map was initially what was formed as Manitoba. And that was, there were a few different reasons why that happened. It was to give some of the Métis population a chance at a land claim. It was to give the government of Canada standing as opposed to just Hudson's Bay yeah, to yeah. be able to kick the people out that they didn't uh, want there. Hmm. <laughs> Notably, the other Métis that didn't get land claims and certainly the indigenous populations. Yeah. It also dealings. held off a very eager American excursion up north right right because were yes. they weren't the americans were they working with canadians because you said it's like part of minnesota so i imagine a lot of like what would later be america were very interested in these lands yeah as well. they were not working with the canadians okay the americans wanted they just wanted straight up land wanted, they're like can we make america go up to the yeah okay <laughs> and right. the Part of the idea behind the Manitoba Act was to make it so that if you want to make America go up to Hudson's Bay, you're going to have to go around this big chunk of land that we just made into a province. Right. Wow. Right. Okay. And so that happened. And he, um, Louis, Louis is kept from taking office in Ottawa, even though he was elected. Right. Okay. And you mean you can the, get elected and not win the, the office? The Canadian <laughs> government, it, well, in addition to the bounty that was on his head, from uh from english-speaking canada he was also not respected whatsoever by the government (laughs) by the by the canadian establishment and he was offered a bribe if he would just stay in exile he took the bribe he took Ah, the money went in exile and was actually formally exiled as a result of that so i mean i don't want to say that it was a bribe it was probably some sort of an arrangement but it kind of looks like a bribe it's like if we pay you Will you stay out? Yeah. For five years. So he's formally exiled. Um, but this is after some time. This is after some back and forth. And he's okay. he's come and gone a little bit. He's tried to take his seat in office. He's still trying to agitate and advocate for the Metis. Okay. And it's you know it's Yeah, but notice we've barely talked about Gabriel for a while. Kind of stolen out. Yes. And so I, I really struggled because it's impossible to go into Gabriel and the rest of Louis' story without this. Sure, absolutely. Totally. So thank you for indulging me. No, I think it's good because, like, sometimes we are, like, it's important that we remind people of the second banana thing and how and why it's related and stuff like that. So, yeah. So Louis is out in the wilderness of Montana. He's in exile. He got paid a little bit. Um, You know, he he did earn some sort of um, recognition some sort of standing for the Métis people as a result of the Manitoba Act. Manitoba is created. It's a lottery. Gabriel and Madeline do not win the lottery. No! Like in terms of who can settle it? Louis, why didn't you rig the lottery for them? Right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Oh, right, because you hadn't met them yet, still. So the the way that things worked in the Red River Colony was the Métis practice of the seigneurial system, which is long plots that go out from the river so that everybody gets a river plot. Yeah. Uh, the way that the Canadian system was is that you get these parcels. And so only the people who are right next to the river get the river lots and everybody else gets no river. No river. Um, In any case, it was a lottery. It wasn't 
based on who was where when the act was passed. It was based on who won the lottery. However, that worked. <laughs> Whatever degree of opacity However, was behind yeah. that. I'm sure it was perfectly it. fair. Yeah. So, needless to say, the Dumonts do not win that lottery. And they're forced to re- relocate the other side of Lake Winnipeg. Oh, fun. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but, you know, they were pretty well off in relative terms. And so they land on their feet. Um, Gabriel is transitioning away from the hunting that had been kind of the staple of his family and Madeline's family um, existence for generations. And he begins hiring himself out to newcomers who need help managing the prairies. And he's like in his 30s at this point or 40s? Um, So if he was born in 37, he's about 40 Ish. Okay. We're getting towards kind of the late seventies, the mid seventies, yeah. um, early eighties. So that was like that's a, that's a, that's a tough time to transition from like oh for sure being amazing at your regular your life to like another less yeah or whatever different life right for sure. So he he opens up a ferry service in the South Saskatchewan River. Oh, yeah. Okay. At Gabriel's Crossing. He, um, and that serves kind of handily, it serves a, a similar role to what his kind of circulation amongst the Plains peoples to trade served mm-hmm. previously mm-hmm. in that he has people coming through that he is connecting with, he's solving their problems, he's helping them do what they need to do. Um, amongst some of these people are, you know, people of all backgrounds, yeah. but um, the Hudson Bay Company engage with him in a contract to build a road he gathers together a crew helps them build the road makes a bunch of cash from it and so he has ways of cobbling together an income but it's much much more tenuous than it than it ever was for him and he still has a lot of status in the plains he still is master of the plains um, and that still speaks a lot to the, the new community that he's moved into. Mm-hmm. And within a few years, he is elected to government in St. Laurent de Grandin. Um, and his constituents are pissed. No way. <laughs> so Métis people's oh, re- reliance on the Monsieur bison Dumont, we are pissed. <clears throat> yeah, it, it needs to transition to farming. Um, to farming their land oh, because the bison's no longer there, yeah. but they don't have the titles. This is still right. they're yeah, basically they techn- like oh my God. the Red River can has been kicked down the road further west, basically. Right. And so he is working on behalf of of these people uh, of his people to try and basically accomplish the same type of thing as Louis yeah. and the leadership at Red, R- Red River were trying to accomplish, you know, ten years previously. Eventually, after having petitioned the government, letter writing, trying to appeal to authorities, um, all sorts of different approaches, him and, um, and the leadership in the South Branch decide that the best way of escalating this is to get Louis Riel back in the fold. Right. Where's Louis? Bring him back. So he gathers a party and goes down to Montana, and they go to fetch Louis. <sighs> it's this I think, is like three you could make like multiple seasons of tv out of this oh for sure you can make more than just any one buddy movie. i am acutely aware of yeah. how dense this, this is. is like amazing <laughs> yeah so they finally arrive in montana to where riel is is known to be staying dumont presents his proposal to louis right 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 louis says he needs to he needs to think about it for a bit he's a little bit coy at first 
He says, He's a shy boy. Do I, do I know you? Do I know you? And Gabriel says, Well, no, you don't know me, but I know you. Just you know my reputation. But it's probably. Master of the Plains? It's, it's pretty likely. Have you heard ever of me? heard of me? <laughs> it's pretty likely that they both knew one another from reputation right, at yeah. that stage. <clears throat> In any case. Because well, they went to find him, for fuck's sake. Riel, <laughs> right. Yeah. Riel, um, uh, basically makes Gabriel wait a couple days, then comes back to him and saying, yes, of course. Of course I'll come with you. I'm going back to lead my people to freedom. I have had a chance to speak with God. <laughs> I went to Washington, D.C. <laughs> I, sp- I, and I climbed he a mountain. actually? I, I climbed a mountain and God spoke to me. This is my destiny. God sent you to get me to come back and lead the Métis people. And, uh, to and, freedom. and Gabriel's like, uh, fuck. <laughs> the, the, the Israelites of North America. <laughs> wow. Is basically how Louis saw wow. himself and the Metis. So he has some, he has a, a, a bit of a different perspective on things so generally than this, Gabriel like, does. So like he obviously, like was he religious before when they established his provisional government was that sort of like figuring into his thinking at the time he was religious from a very young age right and like but i just wondered like yeah like was that it's always like i don't know like was the original provisional government like did he ha- did he have those ideas then or or at least he didn't speak of them then no very very apt point to bring up it was very clear um so gabriel realizes that the nature of of this near legendary figure is not one that he expected. Right. The great Métis leader of the Red River Rebellion, um, deeply religious from childhood, in exile, had escalated his spirituality. Right, he's in, just a little, this... he's like, I talk to God, and like, so it's so cool, and his hair is like getting crazier, and he's oh, got like these sure. red rims under his eyes, and like, like, I climbed a fucking mountain, okay? I climbed a mountain, Louis, Gabriel, Gabriel, listen to me. I know what you're gonna say. I know I sound crazy. I got, no, I'm serious. Gabriel, Gabriel, look at me. Don't look, don't look away. Don't look away. Oh God, your eyes are creepy. Oh God, how many people you killed? Listen, listen, listen. God spoke to me, okay? It's all right, it's all right. I'm serious. I'm going to lead you guys to victory. You were here to bring me there to lead you guys to victory. Oh my God. Wow. Oh, I said it. I Let's said roll it. out. Yes. <laughs> Never Absolutely. It's like, it's like we're there. Um, so yeah, real spirituality has escalated to, um, to a, what, what at times becomes a feverish degree of enthusiasm for catholicism but so also his own most of the metis catholic by absolutely this point? okay so well, like louis like gabriel also would have been well catholic, he, he would be he would catholic. be familiar with catholicism right. okay, yeah. he was definitely not the spiritual person that right. yeah. louis was and again speaking to the louis being the white european archetype of the metis persona right and gabriel being the indigenous archetype of the metis persona mm-hmm um, you know, Louis really embodied the Quebecois Roman Catholic kind of devout yeah. idea. And Gabriel was kind of like, yeah, you know, it's like, actually, <laughs> I had my hand in some bison guts earlier. Like, right? actually... That's, that's my God, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah. Totally. Um, well, it, it seems that he appreciated spirituality, right? Gabriel, but he was more of a practical person. Yeah. Right. Right. Makes sense. So Gabriel is taken aback by what he is finding in this great man that he's come to bring back to uh, to defend the Métis. 
um, the zealotry that uh, that Louis is demonstrating may have overlapped with what is now as an uh, what is now understood as having been um, a mental illness for Louis. He was, um, I guess, posthumously diagnosed with megalomania. Okay. Which also uh-huh. came up. Which also came up in his trial. Right, yeah, of course. As they were attempting so, to so, yeah, of course, plead like, insanity. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this guy was, like, at the very least, a very intense person um, and devoutly spiritual. And, yeah, I think megalomania probably is a good way Drawing to... Drawing a lot of, of uh, like, oh, this... parallels to Kanye with... Uh, <laughs> the right I thought we said... I know I did this as, like, a joke, but now we keep doing it seriously, like... Power couples, Instagram influencers, <laughs> Kanye, Jay and Bay. I didn't want to do this. It's a staple of the pod now. It's a, it unfortunately is. <laughs> totally. In any case, this He is oh my god, he's the Kanye to Gabriel Just and saying. Madeline's fucking Jay and Bay. Oh my god. Oh Wow. Okay. Devastating realization. Yeah. Analogy. <laughs> I have been wrecked. So this uh this behavior, this um Real's enthusiasm for his spirituality and his yeah. and his way of expressing it is something that will come back to test Gabriel in the years to come. Uh, in any case, he's he's found the man that he came found in him. search of. Mission so accomplished. The Northwest Rebellion. The new companions return to the South Branch settlement area, as he had done before leaving to fetch Riel. Dumont and the leadership in the area send demands to the prime minister in Ottawa. And once again, Johnny McDonald. Yep. Once again, he survived a, um, what was it? It was some sort of scandal. Johnny McDonald was involved in some sort of like, it's interesting to think about a scandal at that time. Because like he was known to like fight other ministers on the floor. Like what was a scandal (laughs) back then when it was just like, I'm drunk and I'm going to fight you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That was just like normal political behavior. Oh my gosh. Like what did he say? He told an MP, he's like, I'll lick you quicker than a feather in hell or something like that. (laughs) Whoa. Nice. Let's figure that thread out. Fighting (laughs) analogy that I'm going to start using. Or like he meant like, like you'll burn up like a feather in hell. It was like. Excellent. Totally. So yeah, so their their petitions are ignored. They're trying to outline the rights that they that they are looking for, and there's no response. They send another demand letter with more urgency, also ignored. At that stage, they decide it's time to set up another provisional government. There you go. Because <laughs> they seem to work out okay. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> what could worked. go wrong? <laughs> but this is really, um, you know. This is why Dumont went to get Riel. He realized that, and I think, you know, I'm uh, I'm attributing all of this to Dumont. It was certainly like the leadership in general making these decisions, but Dumont was, you know, kind of at the forefront of this. He was the de facto. He was the person that just people were like, this guy knows his shit. And he and he knows his own limits. And he's like, I can speak seven languages, but I can't read and I can't write. Yeah. So if right. we're gonna if we're gonna speak to this fucking government in in their language, we need the whitest boy possible. <laughs> exactly. We need somebody who's been there and done that. We need somebody who loves saints because those white people they fucking love saints. I don't get it. I don't understand. They love them. <laughs> and Louis, he loves them too. Louis is. Loves saints so much, he is almost a saint himself. He is a saint, in my mind. 
Let's get the Louisville Saint petition going. There are like I'm pretty sure there have been like multiple like projects like at least visually connecting him oh. with sainthood sainthood for sure with um yeah, yeah well i mean he's already viewed but i mean if he had been stage, white he probably would be a saint by now <laughs> for sure um, well I, I think you're absolutely right um and if it weren't for probably the um you know some of the things that took place during the Nor- northwest rebellion he would have definitely been a saint yeah. like his execution right. of <laughs> no that was during the that was during the red river rebellion yeah. oh, okay but Sorry. but Good part of the reason why confused. they had so much and it's worth a quick sidebar for this part of the reason why that provisional government in red river had so much support was because they had the support of the clergy and that was partially due to louis affinity with right yeah catholicism and the clergy and his ability to appeal to them and bring them into the fold mm-hmm. now in the northwest rebellion doesn't quite go the same because Louis turned a bit of a spiritual corner during his exile. He went to the mountain. He talked to God. We're bigger than Jesus. He's like, (laughs) he's like clergy. Did you guys talk to God? Yeah. I did. Excuse me. He's elevated. (laughs) Did you hike Washington, DC? Did you talk to God? Literally Pierre, Pierre, don't no Pierre. Like look me in the eye and say it. Yeah. That's what I thought. God talker. Yeah. Yeah. So they form a, a provisional government based in Batoche. Batoche. This government is dubbed by Louis the Exovidate, Whoa. which is taken from a Latin word, which means out of the flock. Um, it's a it's made a up word, word but huh. it's based on a Latin yeah, word. I can see that. <laughs> so he was also a wordsmith. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, Gabriel is the general adjutant of the Exovidate. Mm-hmm. Louis Rial is the symbolic leader, but really he's kind of like the figurehead. He's the public facing. He's the outward facing leader of this of this government. Right. That's like to who? That's my interest is like like what like obviously they needed Louis as a figurehead and more than just a figurehead sort of like a, a, a you know what a diplomat or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. Um but like like I guess that's mostly to the Métis community. Right. And then also because clearly he can read and write. Exactly. And he can do a lot of that. And stuff. I mean, they're. And speechify. I don't for know sure. if Gabriel could, like. No, definitely not to the same level. He was not the level of orator that yeah. that Louis was. Yeah. There were other members of the government who were, you know, perfectly literate and were well accomplished in right. di- okay, diplomacy yeah. and in the, you know, the workings of, of planes. And Louis government. had a cachet already. For sure. Like, yeah. But in terms of actual administration of stuff that happened gabriel was kind of the go-to guy and then yeah. like the big stuff uh the big kind of symbolic moments or whatever riel was was the guy so tensions are building within the settlements uh, which are divided from within over whether or not this provisional government deserves support indigenous canadian british metis settlers and clergy do not easily align themselves with the vision that riel lays out this is one of a militaristic and political campaign to bring security to the Métis population in the region, which is quite similar to what was going on in the Red River uh, situation. But a new wrinkle is that he, <laughs> Riel is sprinkling in his new unique brand of spirituality <laughs> oh, into the nice. into the movement. So this is like a, like a borderline Jonestown. This is not the yeah, easiest thing for people Yikes. to embrace. Yeah. Okay, so like, yeah, there's obviously like some of that is a bit 
whatever, like a way of dismissing him as kind of a crank later. Totally. And, and we need to be very and wary. Like we should be aware of that. But like, obviously it was enough so that at least like, I think like it's like if the Métis settlers are like not comfortable with it, like you have, if like people who are already like maybe like it, it looks like basically like they were like, they had, they were like, well, we kind of, we got a place now. Like, we're not totally, like, left out of the cold, some of us anyway. Like, they're seeing him be like, and also, we're going to put pictures of me in every schoolhouse and <laughs> right. or whatever. Or, or whatever, whatever he's, Or even if he's just like, and yeah, so, like, all the ministers will have to talk to me before they get started. Or, what, you know, whatever sort of and spiritual details it is. Prima <laughs> Nocta. So part Louis of... Louis Real definitely, like, I think Catholic <laughs> mystics are known for their wanting to fuck. Yes. For sure. For sure. That mustache says it all. <laughs> Um, but one of his outbursts or one of the notable kind of moments during this time when he's speaking publicly and looking to gain support for the provisional government, he declares that Rome has fallen. Wow. Okay. And the new Rome will be Whoa. built. Okay. So he's already like plains. basically like making sure that no actual Catholic priest can ever be like, well, he's <laughs> yeah, even be like, exactly. you know, he's a little, he's whatever, but he's an okay he, guy. So right then you've lost all the clergy. Yeah. Right then you've lost a good portion of the Métis. Any, well, and devout, any devout Catholics, like of any color. Which, which like, a strong majority of the Métis with their right, foundations right. in Quebec would certainly be. Yeah. So they're all kind of like, and suck, all the people in French their Canada teeth who were like, "This guy's cool," and they're like, "Oh no, disrespect the papa, no." Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's kind, of, it's getting a little bit. Yeah, so icy. yeah, he's sort he's, of like going off script. He's too on much. thin ice now, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, right. Dire conditions are prevalent across the communities oh, yeah. in the South Branch, and while desperate, many, even amongst the Métis, feel that. Uh, Louis and Gabriel's project, i.e. the provisional government, is not going to pan out well. Mm. So already they're not quite, you know, clicking ahead as they wanted to. But well, clickety-clack down the track, but as it, they should be. <laughs> but it's kind of too, you know, they're, they're doing this, right? Gabriel and a small party encounter a group of Northwestern Mounted Police um, and force their retreat after posting up in superior field position following a supply raid to a local shop. Basically, in, um, in trying to prepare for what they concluded was an, an inevitable showdown with Canadian forces, be it the police or, the, or armed forces, they figured that they needed a lot more supplies, particularly a lot more ammo, which they were pretty chronically low on for right. the entire <laughs> for the entire campaign is ammunition like a uh it's like a manufactured thing like it's not just muskets at this point these are like like kind of lock barrel e exactly shotguns and things exactly like that. okay exactly um and yeah so ideally you have proper ammunition to be able to wage this like mm. rebellion that <laughs> you've yeah, started i guess that would be a key provision for, for sure a big battle for sure so this initial conflict where Gabriel and his, um, and his forces turn back the, the Northwest Mounted Police is, um, is the beginning, signals the beginning of the Northwest Rebellion. It is called the Battle of Duck Lake, and it sees Riel come, uh, come in to tell the raided shopkeep after the fact that he should keep track of everything that the Métis took. 
and it will be repaid afterwards, which is this kind of ameliorating or like, you know, middling response in from from Riel and that he doesn't he seems to not want to go all the way. He doesn't, you know, we'll take the ammo and we'll we'll rob we'll raid your shop, but but we'll give it back. Right, you know, we're not, um, we're not, we're, we're we're doing this for this is God. This will help you in the end too. Type Ex- exactly. So you can see he's I'm good for it. He's trying to balance out some degree of diplomacy with this. I think possibly he's a little bit allergic to direct conflict in a way. Ever since the Thomas Scott thing, yeah, where he got chased out of the country for killing yeah, that the English too well guy. for him. But I mean, yeah. I mean, that was a bad situation. I don't think that was going to end well either way. No, exactly. But it doesn't seem like it did him any favors in this current situation. Yeah, but it does signal um, a theme during the Northwest Rebellion for Louis, which is that he has established some imagined moral boundary, some, uh, you know, some some line that he doesn't want to cross. Okay, yeah. And he, and he somehow imagines that not crossing this line is going to benefit his project in the long term, uh, whether or not it actually does. Now, it happens to be the case that it definitely doesn't. <laughs> um, for example, Louis repeatedly, whole in in consultation with with Gabriel, who is the who is effectively the general of the forces, holds Métis forces back from delivering decisive tactical blows against foes on the battlefield. Uh, this only oh. occurs because Dumont's respect and loyalty towards Riel allows this. So Dumont is trying not to kill. Well, Dumont wants to. Dumont Dumont wants to achieve military victory. Right. Riel is telling him to hold oh, back, okay. right. to show mercy, to not deliver the finishing blow, to not kind of oh, assert yeah. their position, to to not assert their advantage when they have it, and ultimately is a very like that is um, does not seem tactically sound no <laughs> but but a very uh, a, a symbolic move yeah it, if, it seems like it harks back to if, like if uh, he was a white person it might have actually been respected again. yeah like i i right. or whatever like i think like this harks you back know, to like the days of i think maybe, so-called civil war well and mercy is definitely a big christian virtue so i think that might maybe you know louis heard that from god too and yeah yeah who knows um but in any case it is Ultimately, Dumont's respect and loyalty towards Riel uh, that allows this to even happen. Yeah. If it weren't for Riel's influence, it is un- undoubted that um, that Gabriel would have achieved victory at least in these initial battles right. yeah. in the Northwest Rebellion. So now, whether or not long term victory would have still resulted for. Uh-huh. the Métis for, um, you know, for the Exovidate. I mean, uh, you could argue yeah. that eventually the Canadian government's going to throw everything that they have at it if it escalates that far. So yeah. there was no real exit strategy. The idea, I think, was probably to get it to a, to a certain point and then negotiate yeah. for ultimately what they wanted to begin with, which is just legal standing on the land that they live in. Right. It's so interesting how they, like, clearly they both know that they need each other. Yes. But they, yeah. be, they both seem like they're like so opposing the way they want to conduct things. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> it, is, it is such an interesting dichotomy. It is incredible. Um, so whether, uh, again, whether long-term defeat was inevitable or not, 
the defeat suffered by Dumont's forces in the Northwest Rebellion was certainly due to his soft spot for Louis and to Louis's approach to some of these um, conflicts, which was definitely not, <laughs> you know, to to go for blood. Right. Yeah. Um, even though it very much needed. Yeah, to Yeah, I mean, especially is... when your enemies are trying to shoot to kill you, it doesn't yeah, do you much like... good to not try to kill. Exactly. Them. <laughs> so as resistance in South Branch is escalating to violence at Duck Lake, increase... yeah, I wonder. I, I do wonder. Clearly, like Louis is at some some degree detached from reality. You right. Know? Like, yeah. Like yeah. more so than just like like this. It's again like that's the that's the thing about a lot of propaganda is. A lot of it is always based in a little bit of truth, like this sort of like the insane, the mad prophet Louis Riel is like, clearly he wasn't, he was sort of thinking in a way that wasn't necessarily all, all that attached to what was actually going on around him. Right. Or if it was, it was just so filtered through a lens of like, I need to be this prophet, I need to serve God, like, more so than maybe like, well, what's happening right now? Or what is, you know, so yeah. Well, and part of what Louis is imploring to gabriel at this time is that there is a miracle afoot uh, like there's one already right. happening or there's one the one there's one coming. there's one coming there's one on the yeah. horizon so that their, their salvation is <laughs> is, is awaiting he's got the deus ex machina all planned out right. to win this war and <laughs> this does not necessarily land um with dumont yeah but he he also doesn't dismiss it outright he says well yeah. you know this man what? is a great man and i've you know i need to trust him kind okay. of thing so anyways we'll let's see if it pays off as resistance in south branch is escalating <laughs> and it does oh my god they defeated colonial britain <laughs> score for indigenous rights there's the celebration dance Ooh, that's a spicy one yeah. i think it's gonna work out very catholic um as as resistance in south branch is escalating to violence at duck lake Increasingly desperate and indignant Cree bands further west are executing raids for food and supplies on established oh boy. forts and centers of authority and basically places where there are supplies. Yeah, like I guess it would be po good to point out this is not the only rebellion happening at this time. Well, no, all of these together mm. are what is referred to as the Northwestern Rebellion. Oh, interesting. Okay. Some of them were related. Some of them were entirely unrelated. The ones kind of... that were related oftentimes would have resulted from news of yeah. the rebellion or something. Exactly. So, so the battle at Duck Lake where, um, where Gabriel and his forces, uh, a small force really, turned away the, the mounted police. Mm -hmm. Word spreads of that and a band over here and a band further west over there. Yeah. They decide, hey. Like it's popping off. Right. We haven't yeah, had we food for like three weeks. Let's go get some fucking that's food so right. and it, some supplies. It's that's still the way things go when you look at you know the Arab Spring and and you know things happening in for sure you know the Middle East. Like you see one government topple or like even the inkling of like you know we can seize power back from the government. It's like yeah that spreads like wildfire and people will take hold of that for sure for sure. And on the other hand, there were also conflicts that were completely unrelated that were just coincidental yeah people were sure. people were in desperate situations in many cases and they were like um we're gonna take your shit <laughs> we're hungry yeah. and yeah. Y your your government is not respecting the treaty that they signed with us we no longer have bison to hunt 
we don't have any decent land to farm we we don't know how to farm mm-hmm. that's not how we've lived this is something i, I talk about like, yeah this is sort of interrelated but like um uh, a lot of the stereotypes of Jews being bankers and traders and stuff came from the fact that during feudalism, they weren't allowed to own land. Mm. Um, like, that's something that happened because they, like, th- th- it's, it's like the same thing with the, the indigenous peoples. Is like, in a lot of ways, they weren't allowed to do certain things. Like, they were probably not allowed to farm until it was like, yeah, now you guys got to farm. Sorry. Or whatever, right? Yeah, and, oh, what's the matter? You're not good at farming? Well, yeah, tough. Yeah. yeah too Figure bad. it out. And just like criminalizing their previous lifestyle, and then the barriers, yeah, the barriers to transitioning exactly, to a new, right? yeah, we'll just get in the fold, you know, capitalism. Yeah. Like, come or put, put on a suit even, and tie, come work at the and office. And it's still happening now. Just look at the countries now, how we're like, we're like, oh, you're burning oil, you're using fossil fuels. Fuck you. You need to have a green economy. It's like, <laughs> it's yeah, like, oh, guys, that's how oh, you, you guys didn't... made your empire earlier. Yeah, that's totally. different. It's different <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. You don't... Shame on you, like, China. Shame you, man. Stop polluting. Oh. All, all of those emissions, China, how dare you industrialize? Yeah, yeah uh, I see I see a lot of parallels. If you were us, you would have already done that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. should have been smart like us. You should have employed slave labor. Ago. and Yeah, <laughs> yeah, wild. Um, yeah, so there. this is all kind of happening, uh, whether it's related or unrelated. And, of course, the government, the distant government in Ottawa mm-hmm. refers to this as all one thing. Active open revolt. And in fact, before uh, the Northwest Rebellion had even broken out, kind of like in the um, in the late seventies, late eighteen seventies, um, a leader of the Hudson's Bay Company kind of like slagged the Métis population in the area by telling the government in Ottawa that they were in open revolt at that stage, as kind of a, a flex to be like. They're an open revolt. Like, yeah, they're they're oh. they're doubting your your supremacy. It's amazing how much fake news was still swirling around back then. Oh yeah, it's so much <laughs> easier back yeah, then. Yeah, I know. Right? Is... Like, it's easy. I don't mean it's just like like literally. You like, could just tell someone something. It's like oh, well, and literally, we've got like, a deed the to this only land. Way, there are two ways to like. There were two ways to communicate. It's like you could either write it down, or if you couldn't write, you would tell someone to tell someone to tell someone to tell someone. Yeah. And like you think about, there's no phones. There's no. There's no like the only way you can communicate is sort of like telephone, like the mm-hmm. game of telephone essentially where yeah. like it gets distorted and it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you can deliver it word for word, but then like someone else hears that or like, yeah, like someone says like, yeah, man, they fucking killed that white dude back in the Northwest rebellion. Oh like, my God, yeah. like they, and then it's all of a sudden it's like, they're killing white dudes. Yeah. Like, you hear this? They're killing all the exactly. white dudes. Yeah. Just think of like, how much racism like that, was right? like, like easily spurred. Like it's just like, I'm sure. Single sure. drunk guy. Like, just, or yeah. it was like, Oh yeah. He saw, he talked to God. He went to the mountain, talked to God. He fucking saw God. Yeah. God talks through him. Everybody like, it just like escalates. Yeah. Right. Totally. So yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, time for propaganda. I was yelling there. I'm sorry. Yeah. We get heated. So needless to say, once, it's declared that open rebellion is underway in the north in the northwest it's only a matter of time before government forces arrive and with the fairly freshly built railroad reaching more or less the whole way to that area it only took 9 days for for 900 troops under oh, wow. General so Major General Middleton, that's how quickly they turned yeah. out of that machine. <laughs> um, <laughs> arrived from Ottawa, and they are approaching Batoche, which is the 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 headquarters of the Exovidate. Mm-hmm. 
the the first encounter with government forces um, that were sent to quell the rebellion occurs at Fish Creek. And this is definitely the most badass battle of the whole thing. The battle of Fish Creek. It's basically up creek from Batoch. Uh, the Métis are outnumbered and outgunned. And Gabriel Dumont leads them in um, in a battle against the um, against Middleton's forces. So they're outnumbered nine hundred to two hundred. Oh shit! They oh, have God. they have some pretty good field position. That's not like the nine hundred to two hundred in those days is not an unwinnable battle. No, but well, like it as demonstrated on and mm-hmm. by yeah, Gabriel Dumont, they won it. Because you can see like battle positions here. They definitely have like a ridge and stuff they're working Exactly. Towards, so. so they yeah. dug, definitely exploit that. They dug holes into the side of the river. Um, they exploited, um, or Gabriel in particular, exploited a mistimed uh, supply boat that they sent up oh. the river that arrived before it should have and didn't have uh, protection. Didn't have protection. Uh-huh. And so while the um, while the while Gabriel's forces were firing on this boat from either side, um, it continued down the river instead of instead of trying to stop or go over to the side because it was in such a, a threatened position. And as it as it went further down the river, they pulled down the ferry cable from Batosh and basically split the boat in half. Wow disabling it and scuppering the two barges of supplies that it was carrying behind it which what? is a fucking really <laughs> that sounds like yeah that sounds so crazy fucking <laughs> cut a boat in half so cool <laughs> so anyways that boat was fucked and gabriel's basically just flexing on yeah. <laughs> this army that's come to his, yeah, his territory it's right? like leonidas right now so um gabriel and his forces are holding their ground um, at Fish Creek, he's picking people off with Le Petit, left, right, and center. Oh, yeah, Le Petit, <laughs> and, you're my best friend. And uh, they're also waging an ingenious guerrilla campaign against uh, Middleton's forces, whereby once night falls and the troops are trying to rest, trying to kind of rejuvenate for the next day's fighting, mm-hmm. Uh, Gabriel's forces won't let them rest. Nice. They, you know, these Classic. are these Classic. are these are city folk. These yeah. are these are army conscripts from yeah. uh, from Upper Canada or whatever. Mm. They're not used to living and so surviving. Is this like a standing army. This is, these are conscripts. These are just well. Like, I'm I'm not sure actually. Yeah, I I might know, be misspeaking. Yeah. They're coming from no, Ottawa but, though, yeah. so they're like but the they're, capital's forces. So totally. They imagine they're, they're pretty posh. They're not used to life yeah, in the sure. Northwest at um, by any stretch. And they're also in, you know, they're in Gabriel's backyard. So they use his turf. They use their ammo sparingly and they, they shoot, uh, kind of just warning shots throughout the night sporadically to keep everyone on edge, keep everyone from sleeping, to keep everyone from, from relaxing and recovering. That must have been kind of fun in a weird, creepy way. Like. Just being like, all right, all right, do For another sure. one. <laughs> For sure. And then after a couple of days of this, you know, sleep deprivation is setting in. Mm. They kind of fuck them over with the whole supply thing, which is amazing. So they don't yeah, necessarily no have a lot of the food and ammo that they mm. thought that they would have. This is almost becoming like a war of attrition. And 
um, and during a definitive exchange on, I think, the third or fourth day of the battle, um, the a favorable wind blows in, and Gabriel's forces light the um, light the grass on fire smoke and blow the, and the fire blows and smoke blows oh, up in, into yeah. um, into their position and forces them to retreat entirely. Oh, so really? they have they have to back up and back out of that situation and then try to approach Batosh wow. from a different angle. That's using so, the land to your advantage. Yeah, so this was an absolute upset by yeah. by every measure and um, whether or not it would Holy impact crap. the end result. But uh, they straight up won that battle, outnumbered like yeah. four to one. Oh yeah, big time. So then comes the Battle of Batosh. It's inevitable they... Um, you know, Middleton's forces did not turn away. They did not go home. They turned back and regrouped and then came back to to basically attack. Right, the, right yeah. That's probably what they expected. The seat of government in Betosh for the provisional government. Uh, it quickly turns into a siege, um, resulting in the Métis running out of supplies after yeah. literally shooting everything they had at the Canadian forces. Oh. So they ran out of bullets. Yeah, we knew this was going to be a problem for them. Possibly yeah. um, because they had been shooting throughout the night, sparingly too, yeah. as part of their guerrilla right, yeah. um, tactics. But nevertheless, I mean... Well, they, they're going like, to run out of bullets before the fucking British government does, unfortunately. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And case in point on that, um, even at Fish Creek, there was a Gatling gun in play. The early Ooh. Gatling gun. That, that an American... Adventurer oh, yeah, was, had brought up. Oh, no, it's a cannon, I think. Uh, there was also there were also artillery. Um, yeah, cannons. They do have some artillery. So they were so outgunned, and the the Canadians didn't even need to worry about ammo. They just kind of shot and shot and shot and shot and shot. Right. Whereas um, whereas Dumont's forces were counting every single yeah. thing. I feel yeah. that this was an interesting part of this uh, this era of warfare because we had this new, we had cannons, we had Gatling guns starting to be in their first use. Forces actually got too reliant on them and they thought they were like OP because they had this superior like firepower. Yeah, but it's and also then it like would... an incredibly finicky weapon that will like fall that apart too. if you don't take care of it. That too, but they would put much less effort into their like actual tactical planning because uh, they thought they just yeah. had superior firepower. For sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think this is possibly at play here, at least in the Fish Creek exchange. Uh Battle of Batosh, you know, it was only ever really a matter of time. Yeah. Um and even though there's this the siege taking place, the the forces at Batosh um, defending it are shooting buttons, nails, because yeah. you could still yeah. hold those things with just yeah. like like whatever they could. Yeah, and they're holding everything down. Uh, Dumont is continuing to be a devastating force on the battlefield uh, with Le Petit. Le Petit uh, shooting absolutely, absolutely a force to be reckoned with until the very end of the battle. Mm -hmm. He even takes. A bullet to the head. What? That doesn't sound survivable. Which, which ricochets off of his skull. That is a fucking Yikes. badass. And he continu and he continues <laughs> fighting. Uh, bullets. bullets can't hurt me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, these are not the modern bullets that you all know and love. Uh, these are Absolutely Yeah, these incredible. are like iron balls or whatever. Yeah. Just like my balls. Shots. Just like <laughs> Dumont's balls. <laughs> Dumont's yeah, got iron balls. So the, the Battle of Batoche ends eventually when the clergy, who were 
um, who were trapped inside during the siege change sides and go over to the Canadian military side and basically expose all of the Exovidate secrets. They have no supplies. They have no ammo. They uh, only have a couple hundred people minus the, um, the number of people that they lost in the three battles up to that point. Yeah. They don't really have a leg to stand on. Yeah. And all it takes is that information for, um, you know, the finishing blow to be delivered by the Canadian forces. Rial is taken into custody by the fucking pigs. Dumont escapes, uh, searches out Rial and other Métis survivors, mm-hmm. um, does not find Rial, obviously, but does find some other um, companions, and they eventually flee to America. Um, and the provisional government is obviously dissolved. Yeah. So the main thing uh, that result in Louis Riel being captured is that English Canadians want retribution for the Thomas Scott thing. So he is not allowed to go free after that. Yeah. Um, he is absolutely taken back. Um, and it's the English that have captured him, right? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so there's, there's the, the government wants Louis because they're pissed at him for one set of reasons. And then English yeah. Canada Okay. On its own, kind of in a militia capacity, wants him yeah. f- for another set of reasons. Uh, so he's a fairly sought-after dude. Um, mm-hmm. In any case, his subsequent trial, Louis Riel's subsequent trial, is an absolute sensation. And yeah, no kidding. Bridges on being yeah. A, that's what I farce. remember most about <laughs> reading about it was how it like sort of like, kind of like like was a big like like setback to like english and french people getting along which i always like oh that's the big problem like i don't know it's just like no for sure (laughs) yeah we killed this guy and uh yeah kind of fucked this yeah exactly well he he's the type of and like most public figures people project yeah big time their stuff onto these people right so if you're an english canadian you fucking hate this guy if you're a french canadian even if he kind of doesn't mean that much to you at all you kind of like, love yeah, him. But he pissed off the he pissed off English. But exactly. Like, that's a big thing. Exactly. To this day. And absolutely. <laughs> for French absolutely. So so some of the dynamics that were formed at exactly this time yeah. in the courtroom in this trial exist Exist. today. Yeah. Between French and English Canadians. <laughs> which is wild if you think about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's kind of ridiculous eventually that the judge gives such a sternly worded um, I guess the judge was English. <laughs> advisement to the jury about what they should come back with as their verdict. Oh wow! Which isn't Damn isn't it. not the way that common law is supposed to work. Yeah. Fuck, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> and um, beyond that, um, Riel's attorney is trying to build an insanity defense for him. Sounds like it could hold up. <laughs> Louis is torn as to whether or not he wants to plead insanity because he does not want to be seen as insane. Yeah. Either he knows what he's doing and he is, he has a divine mission and he's the God appointed, you know, leader and savior of the Métis people. Yeah. Or he's bonkers. Mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah because it definitely it'll delegitimizes and even like if he's a good catholic he's like looked at all these christian martyrs and been like 
Right. That looks, that looks dope, actually. Like, do I, is that, is that what I want to do? Cause I'm going to be in heaven after that. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so the, the trial is an interesting opportunity for him to have, uh, I guess, a last platform yeah. to say a bunch yeah. of stuff. And a lot of it he says very well publicly. And some of it he also doesn't say very well at all publicly. Wow. And so people take again project or take what they can from it depending on what well, side like of... what's happening here like how many people are seeing him actually say this versus like this is what's reported in the papers later exactly right? like, and who owns those papers and what's, yeah. what's their yeah. stake um all of these things play into it in any case he is found guilty he is hanged and in an outrageous twist outrageous his, outrageous i say his executioner is a close friend and companion of Thomas Scott's, uh, of the late Thomas Scott's. Do we think that he was chosen specifically because he was? Or I think that I mean I'm not sure, but that is that is a no no. Yeah, like it's just like how that is a no no in any justice system. <laughs> yeah, you think. And how coincidental could it it's be? Like at oh, this point, especially... like uh, maybe if the guy was like already an, an executioner which like at the time it was still just like you're you're, you're hanging people right but like, yeah you're, you're How, pulling a lever yeah however it happened that guy had the executioner's hood yeah. on and as he was about to execute louis real which is meant to be a very somber and respectful occasion yeah he says uh something to the effect of um you're not going to be able to get away from me now do you know who i am louis Oh, shit. And I'm guessing Louis had no idea. No, of course he didn't. <laughs> like, I, a but, white boy? I don't know. <laughs> but this is, like, not something that's acceptable oh, yeah, in, for in sure. any justice well, system. Yeah, I'm fuck. interested to know when we stopped public executions in Canada. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, me too, actually. That was, the, this was like I know the last execution years ago? by guillotine was in the 1940s in France. Right. Okay. People went and saw it, and apparently, like, people were like, sick afterwards <laughs> i like, could imagine like, like people people like it's yeah so yeah wild yeah blah, blah, blah. i mean hanging seeing a little more like is a hanging more civil because i feel like the Does death really is more matter? the death is more prolonged in a hanging well it I depends feel. if you can break the neck or not and and completely like like the idea is yeah. that you break the neck yeah. i've been watching uh handmaid's tale and they upgrade the like hanging method so that it's like a weighted floor that drops and really snaps the neck I'm guessing they didn't have this. Yeah. Sounds, well, they sounds might very have, effective. Yeah, at this point. Because the gallows would have been a thing at this point for sure. Yeah. Um, but it just depends. And it, again, it depends. Like, if his if the guy is his, like, Thomas Scott's fucking friend, like. Yeah, he, he probably. That's, that's too much weight on that. Yeah. Take yeah. some of that off, you know? Like, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Maybe we don't want the death to be instantaneous. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The rope's, like, not even long enough or whatever. Yeah. Gross. I guess you'd survive very in that gross, case. But, but yeah. Um, executions yeah so at this time you know gabriel is in montana he wants to testify in the trial um he probably could have some significant things to say in the trial yeah for sure he petitions from exile but he's definitely not allowed it was probably never going to happen um he's also during this time trying to um trying to rally support for um, you know, getting a party together to go and maybe even break mm. break Louis out of prison. Oh. Um, he's also wow. politically active uh, during this time. 
during the time before and after Riel's execution in trying to fundraise and gain political support for the Métis cause in the Northwest region. And ultimately, the last time that he sees Riel is at Batoche. So they never see each other again. Riel is dead. Uh, Gabriel lives on in Montana. Um, Madeleine Dumont passes away in 1885 of tuberculosis. Of the consumption. Uh, Gabriel, without a wife, without his close friend Louis, is somewhat aimless. You know, um, he is, uh, he's hunting in Montana. He's kind of living a life near to what he would want to, but really not, you know, it's not the same as where, yeah. where he's from, where well, he, where he like, feels he belongs. It's not like a community maybe either. Right. Which is a big, no, exactly. Like and if you grow, especially if you grow up from day one in like, in an extended family, like when you don't have that, it's like, it's devastating in a way that's like hard to explain to people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And also around this time, um, you know, while he's trying to search for a bit of direction, he um, he's in a hunting party in Montana and there's an assassination attempt on him oh, wow. uh, that he turns away. Uh, basically, somebody enters his tent with a knife and tries to stab him. And the he, knife breaks on his neck. He grabs, yeah. right? No, seriously, not too far off. He grabs the knife, like literally grabs through the knife, what the fuck? breaks it out of the attacker's hand, subdues him, and instead of killing him, lets him loose and says, tell whoever sent you. Shit. That that I that just I tell that whoever I, sent you just like holds up the that, knife that this happened. Like... Yeah, exactly. So I mean, or this... alternately, it was just like uh, takes the knife, like what, <laughs> what, what, what? That is yeah, so run. Bad. Just yeah, an, just an incredible dude. Yeah. Um, so he is, again, you know, he's trying to find what he wants to do. He starts performing in Buffalo Bill's Wild Wild West show. Which is um, that sounds like a great, great performing in a circus is like a great way to end your life. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's basically like it started as a more theatrical kind of show, traveling show, and then it became very acrobatic and performance based. Mm. Is that with Wild Bill Hickok? Like, is that Buffalo Bill? Is that those two different people? No, No, I don't think so. Wait, Annie Oakley. Okay, he does perform alongside Annie Oakley, and they do develop. a, you know a relationship a of sorts a, a respect a mutual respect of, of sorts right. because they're both fucking shit hot with their guns yeah. and they ride horses like they were born on them um he is yeah. he's, possibly they were <laughs> he's billed as a as a crack shot in desperado and joins alumna such as sitting bull who also uh, although he didn't perform alongside him or or necessarily meet him um also participated in buffalo bill's wild wild west show right uh, so it was a thing that happened, like yeah. as kind of disenfranchised and marginalized, um, you know, indigenous and Métis people who had certain skill sets kind of and had like nowhere else and had to nowhere go. else to go or, or a way of, uh, of kind of earning a living. They would join these, <laughs> join know, these shows like Frontiers Circus shows. Well, like a thing. Yeah. And they would even travel to Europe. It was yeah. it was totally a thing. That's pretty cool. So he transitions into public speaking and even politics briefly in America, uh, vacillating between Montana and New York. He's not really, really into it. He's, again, not the orator that Louis Riel was, um, and he knows that he's not. Right, yeah. Um, he does want to try and still support the Métis cause, um, but he 
has limited resources, limited yeah. skills to be able to do that in, in the new age. Um, ultimately, he moves back to the Betosh area and finally successfully appeals to the government for a land claim on what? his plot of land where he ran his ferry at Gabriel's Crossing in the South Branch and does not reside there oh. <laughs> almost ah. maybe out of spite i don't know but he, <laughs> he moves into a small cabin of a relative up the river somewhere and, wow. lives, and lives out his years hunting flex. trapping and fishing nice flex yeah exactly one final flex fuck uh, he he dies in 1903 of heart failure uh basically drops dead one morning waking up from uh, probably going hunting out it's what he wanted yeah exactly <laughs> He probably um, would have preferred to die hunting, but yeah. getting up to go hunting, probably a close second. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, seemingly contented, back where he felt that he belonged, doing what he does, you know, living yeah. living in the land, trapping, hunting, fishing, yeah. and around the place that he, that he felt was home. In terms of Gabriel's legacy, it is second only to Louis Riel's in Métis history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Saskatchewan, there are a number of post-secondary institutions named after Gabriel. Uh, the Gabriel Dumont Institute of Native Studies and Applied Research, uh, Gabriel Dumont College, which is a collaboration with the University of Saskatchewan, I believe. Uh, there's a scholarship fund in his name that is ongoing, and uh, the location of his ferry house at Gabriel's <coughs> Crossing, is at, which was also where he had his billiards table, Right. That, that he was a fucking pro at. Damn it. Um, that is now a bridge, a steel trestle bridge. And I believe it's called Gabriel's uh, Bridge. Nice. And Fitting. you can go there. <laughs> That's you cool. can go there across the bridge. Sweet. And um, we in like 2045, when we get the first ever Second Bananas Cross Canada tour. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but his larger legacy is in support of uh, Métis rights, the same, the same as Louis mm. Riel, you know, for better or worse. And, and the reality is, is that the, the Manitoba Act um, and the concessions that were granted to the Métis people in the land claims there, and subsequently um, the status that the Métis people have as distinct peoples yeah. was ultimately to their benefit. And this would not have been achieved without the combined forces of Louis Riel with, uh, with the Red River Rebellion and Gabriel Dumont's involvement in bringing him back for the Northwest Rebellion. Um, so ultimately, there was a degree of success that needs to yeah. be acknowledged in their legacy. Um, and in Gabriel's <coughs> in particular for having the vision for better and sort or worse. Sort of holding it all together when, right. when Re Louis was sort of like just a little detached from everything. yeah like, yeah exactly um so i found it really um this was a really heavy subject totally to, yeah. to look into um yeah i apologize that it's so dense in terms of no, like it was information really good. and facts I, like the historical I, stuff is really really crazy to navigate yeah. yeah yeah this was really interesting i had i had i knew who louis riel was i knew all that stuff i did not know who gabriel dumont before you mentioned him and uh it's this was really cool to dig into this i think but not only I, that because especially since like we're taught real a lot in school um 
but at least the stuff they touch on is I didn't think it was nearly as exciting as this. Well, I knew he had there had been two separate rebellions. I knew that. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much the extent of it. And I knew he'd been hanged. Right. And so, that was kind of. Yeah. I remember they touched on, I think, the Northwest Rebellion or, or Louis Rebellion. It's maybe what they called it. Uh, like his portion of the rebellion. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I don't I don't remember ever hearing about Gabriel Dumont. Because um, there, there have there's been biographies that I've seen up. Liriel, and I think there's some like there's a like, graphic mo- there's novel. movies as I, well. I assume why well, I, I don't know about movies. I know there's oh, okay. a graphic novel. Uh, I think Fantagraphics put it out. Uh, hmm. I don't know who I can't remember who it's by right now, but it looks at least like well drawn. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't speak to its content at all, so I don't. Know it if has it's... some production value. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and I f- I feel like you know some of the details of Louis Riel's uh, circumstances are probably necessarily glossed over in social studies class or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, But the reality of the systematic, like, efforts amounting uh, in in genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Are are something that is, I think, unnecessarily glossed over. Yeah. And that's what I think is a lot of it was (laughs) just sweeping a lot of of the shadier portions of Canada's history under the rug. Um, well, then it's really interesting when you feed, you, you know, the young people in your society information in a certain way and it's not questioned and you end up like later on in your life going back to it and revisiting it with a different lens, yeah. how disappointing it can be that that was what was presented to you as education at that well, stage and, and like, <laughs> because think, it's like, so, think... so myopic. Yeah. And like, not only that, like even when it is like first presented, like how many of these, uh, this, how much of this information still came through white historians right. and non-indigenous historians and not, or like, yeah, maybe, maybe makes, and I'm sure there are some yeah. now and I should, we should probably make yeah. sure that, well, but like, again, like someone who is white is still going to like, even if they're perfectly willing to accept the label of genocide, um, they're not necessarily going to have the same perspective as an indigenous person. No. They're going to be biased, unconsciously biased towards just as all through. Well, like, yeah, two of us are anyway. For sure, uh, unconsciously biased towards. I'm white know, enough. White to. and colonialism, and uh, yeah. I'm pretty white. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty white. Yeah. But yeah, and that's the thing—the cultural component of it really kind of overrides everything. Is that if you if it's the water that you're swimming in, you may not know that your biases are yeah, at play, exactly. right? Um, and I do need to definitely acknowledge again. I think I mentioned him at the beginning. Uh, but Joseph Boyden's amazing book, yeah. Louis, Louis Riel and Gabriel and Gabriel Dumont, was a primary source for my research. Nice. Um, I believe Joseph Boyden is Métis, and he is an excellent writer. Quickly cutting in to clarify, Joseph Boyden, not of Métis heritage, and not confirmed as even having any indigenous heritage yeah. whatsoever. As it stands currently, he's a white dude who is a good writer and focused on indigenous subject matter. Anyways. Back to the pod. Mm. Yeah. Do you know when that was published? Uh, I'm trying to look it up now. It was not terribly long ago. Boy, it didn't. I would say within the last 10 years. Okay. Yeah. Because, oh yeah, he looks really young. Yeah. He is amazing. And he acknowledges at the end, again, in the epilogue, the volume of information, particularly about Louis yeah. Riel, like the most written about and academically studied 
person in Canadian history. Yeah, for sure. Um, let alone. Well, I'm one of those figures that's really fascinating. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of different. Like you said, like we as observers put our own whatever, mm-hmm. like project onto these people, and like Louis is just such an interesting person to project onto, and to sort of, and even just to like, like as an interesting intellectual exercise, like get in someone like that's head, like n- the sure. religious part, the like the socialist part, the or whatever, you know, right. like the the like person of two worlds in a lot of ways part and stuff like that absolutely and and i think that's the thing about gabriel too is he's actually a bit more of a straightforward person it's a little easier to it's a little easier to see him as a person whereas louis is a bit more of um an icon or a figure or like a right a a saint or like some sort of like figure Mm -hmm. of myth yeah absolutely and because gabriel is sort of like yeah and gabriel has his own myth or whatever sort of like archetype but it's just a little bit easier to imagine that as a human being because we know, especially Canadians, know that somewhat know that archetype for sure, very well, fairly well. So, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Um, and I think a last dynamic that I wanted to reiterate, uh, to the extent that it's been addressed previously, was really the, you know, the structural uh, dynamic at play between the European settlers the uh the in-between race of the metis people and the indigenous occupants of the land that we call Mm -hmm. our country now and how the latter or the former two were played against each other and themselves to the benefit of the latter um is 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 crazy um yeah i yeah i just it's just wild yeah amazing yeah. um do you think paul gross could play gabriel dumont get out in... of here <laughs> i just need to get him on board for the production and i'm then... sure he i'm sure he would produce <laughs> okay paul gross paul gross there. get on us make this movie I but prefer, um i would prefer probably an indigenous writer and an indigenous that would be much better um but for sure me. for sure <laughs> and there and there are more than ever to pick yeah. from which, um, I don't know. Thankfully. This is just kind of. I'll just Jeff Barnaby um, is more of a horror writer director. He did uh, this movie called Rhymes for Young Ghouls, and then he just did a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a. It's essentially um, a zombie horror movie that takes place on a reservation. Whoa, and, uh, yeah, that sounds is, cool. And he's a really good writer director. Mm. Um, What's his name? Yeah. Uh, Jeff Barnaby. Mm. Nice. Check it yeah. out. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Good reco. Well, thanks for bearing with me on this one. It no, was this is fantastic. Pretty heavy, but I profoundly enjoyed. Yeah, this was an researching. Awesome I can tell. It's excellent. And thanks, exactly. thanks for coming along yeah. on the ride with me. So, um, yeah. Thank you. And that was second bananas once again. I am Craig, and here with my co-hosts. I'm Wes. You can find me uh, online on Instagram and Twitter at Wes Walcott. And I'm Joe. Uh, you can find me Twitter and Instagram at Stop Joe Now. Um, you can email us secondbananaspod at gmail.com with questions, comments, critiques, croutons, recipes, duh, anything else. Video Cre- game tips. Crepuscular lighting. Crepuscular lighting. <laughs> uh, various no. displays of strength. No, uh, just, yeah, send us an email. Um, especially like we would love to hear um uh metis especially and indigenous perspectives on this uh let us know if we kind of maybe 
did anything. Oh yeah, absolutely. Really mm-hmm. um, and, and furthermore, any perspectives on any of the episodes that we've done where, you know, it's yeah, not necessarily something we're intimately familiar with. Again, we're sort of aiming to spark people's interest and have a fun conversation. Totally, so, yeah. If any of our facts, um, um, we are happy are to not accurate. hear from anybody. Yeah, let us honestly, know. no matter no matter how how it comes across, <laughs> you know. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying with that, but I yeah, just send us an email. Cool. <laughs> we're, we're all ears. Cool. Please, uh, yes, and uh, please. Um, I think that's it. I don't think we're supposed to do anything else. It's okay. Please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, have a good night and we'll see you next time. Next episode is Victor Hara. Victor Hara. Ooh. That should be another nice. one too. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye everybody. Okay, Bye. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.